Hello, and welcome to Real Money Powered by CanStar, a podcast about real people and their real money stories. I'm Effie Zahos, CanStar's editor-at-large, author, and finance commentator. Over the past 20 years plus, I've enjoyed helping Aussies make the most of their hard-earned money. CanStar is Australia's biggest financial comparison site, helping over 10 million people a year compare finance products and make better money decisions. Before we get started, a friendly reminder that everybody's circumstances can be different and nothing we discuss here today should be taken as personal advice. It's always best to make your own inquiries before making any decisions about your finances. When most people think of domestic abuse, they think of physical violence, but you don't have to be pushed or hit. It can take different forms. And one of these is economic abuse. Now, in today's episode, I chat with Samantha, who was in an abusive relationship that not only took an emotional toll, but devastated her financially. I'm also joined by the founder of the Centre for Women's Economic Safety, Rebecca Glenn, who shares some valuable insights into this lesser known form of domestic abuse. Welcome, Samantha. About six years ago, you met a man online, like many people do these days, and began a relationship. At the time, you were earning a great income as a nurse, were able to save and even had a decent chunk of money stashed away for a house deposit. But your partner really wasn't on the same page. You were in an abusive relationship, and I am mindful that this has had a serious impact on all aspects of your life. I want to focus on the financial aspect here, and I'd love you to share that story. Yeah, it financially ruined me. I left the relationship with all my savings depleted. I left with a lot of debt that was his, that became into my name through the whole, I guess, that romantic view of let's join our bank accounts and let's live together like a team and a unit. And by the time I left, I was bankrupt. I left at eight weeks pregnant because it just became so unsafe. Take me back to how someone can be so in love and you said it took you to financial ruin. It took you to bankruptcy. What happened in that period? I think it's a series of microaggressions that happen along that timeline with a few like spikes of physical and verbal aggression and then you go back to these small microaggressions and that's how gradually over time your situation changes without you necessarily leaving it because it's sort of like they put you through this adjustment period. When I first met him, he said, you know, oh, I've got $20,000 in the bank too and you go, that's great. We're on the same page. But then after you move in with them, it's like, oh, yeah, I've got a $10,000 car debt. And then after a few months, it's like, oh, yeah, I've got another $20,000 debt. Or it would be like, let's go shopping. I'm going to take you shopping. He took me shopping. And he would spend like $800 on me. And I'd be like, wow, for him to spend that much money on me must be very financially stable. But everything was on the credit card. And that became a lead in for him to go, well, I want to go shopping now. You know, it's my turn now. But instead of spending $800, he'd spend $3,000 in one store on my credit card and max my card out. And I'd be like, I don't want to do that. And that would be like, well, no, we'll just pay it back really easy. We've got so much money. But the reality is that you don't always know the truth of the actual financial circumstances. Yeah, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors there. You did tell me you were earning a good income as a nurse, so you had a job. So what turned that around from you losing your own financial independence? 
Well, I was working for the nursing agency. So I always hunted like the jobs that were a little bit far away and they paid you travel plus kilometers. And so you could earn like $900 in a day's work. And I would pick up a lot of those shifts or I'd do a lot of night shifts. So yeah, I worked really hard. And his first sort of steps to, I guess, restraining my financial freedom and my personal freedom was to be like, well, we don't need to earn that much because we have two incomes. But I also had this sense that he was waiting for my wages and it was a really creepy feeling. It it was like he was waiting for my wages and then he'd be like, go get me four bottles of wine. Or he'd be like, let's go out for lunch. And so we'd go out for lunch and then he'd be like, you're paying. So there were lots of little tricks and things like that. You ended up having to leave that occupation, didn't you? I did because he didn't like me traveling. So there's no way you can travel to Young. So Young was about three and a half hours away. You can't travel there or I get harassed at work, checking in on me, yelling at me in my work break on the phone because I didn't answer my phone. So in the end, it just became really hard. And he insisted that he had to take me to work and pick me up. So because some of my work was an hour away or whatever, that meant that I'd be spending an hour going to work and an hour going home, just being screamed at in the car. Um, So it became really, really hard. What happened then, Samantha? I mean, if he was relying on you to bring in the income, there was the control on that. He did not like you mixing and mingling out there. Stop that role. What happened after that? I decided that I was going to start a cleaning business because we needed income. When I set up the cleaning business, he then went, well, I'm going to start up a gardening business. So we ended up setting it up together and he insisted that it was a partnership and we went into setting up a company and I was the main person running the company, like legally through all the documents and stuff. But then he chose not to work. Instead of working, he then put me to work from 4am to 8pm every day. My body started to fall apart because I was just working like hardcore cleaning. Just had to stay in bed because my hands weren't working. So it's like 10 steps back then in a financial perspective, I wasn't able to earn the money again. It seems to be a repeat pattern. I'm truly sorry you were in that situation. I know you're in a much better place now, so we can talk about this. But how did all this make you feel? Just so fragile. Fragile. Yeah. And small. I felt so small. Which is probably what he wanted you to to feel anyway. Yeah, absolutely. What was that final straw that made you end things? I can't remember what created the fight, but um, he was screaming at me and saying that he was going to leave and throwing things around the house. And I was pregnant at the time and I just went and locked myself in the bathroom and waited for everything to die down. And I I realised that this is not the life that I want for me or my child and and I don't think this is going to get better and I can't fix it. What help did you get at that stage? Because I can imagine you in that bathroom and that was the breaking point for you. Where does someone go at that time? How did you break through? I waited for him to go to sleep and then I went to the couch and had a sleep and then the next day I woke up. I think it might have been a couple of days I just sort of drove off with him shouting at me in the background and I called my dad. Did you have any money to support you to walk out? I had nothing. Nothing? I had nothing. I. You walked away with nothing? Yeah, I I walked away with a suitcase, actually, and an old wooden trunk that I'd had for like quite a few years that was very special to me. I just tried to pack the sentimental things that could not be replaced. And I didn't have any phone contacts in my phone anymore. So I I called my dad because he's always had the same phone number, like since Stonehenge. And he said, just come home. And I came home. So yeah, in regards to reaching out to like professional services, 
he was actually came in looking for me into our staff office and was threatening our key staff member who was helping me sell the business and there was someone in there that was going to buy the business and he was screaming at her and him and his son were like blocking off the doorway and she was really frightened she was texting me and so I called her up and at the same time I like googled a solicitor got them on a three-way call and was like what do we do here we got the police on the phone, got the police sent out there. She was like, Sam, he is very dangerous right now. He's emotionally charged. You need to get down to Centre Against Violence. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. You mean Centre Against Violence? He hasn't hit me. What, what do you mean? I, I guess where you landed, you landed in a situation whereby you said you went bankrupt. What amount were you bankrupt for? At the end of the day, what financial debt what mess were you looking at there? On paper, it said $80,000 and none of it. Maybe a phone bill was actually in my name or created by me or benefited from me. And then the joint loans, because everything had then been by then been put into joint loans, in hindsight, because he knows that he can disappear because he knows how to do that. So the burden was left on me. And then um, the credit cards. And the thing is, what I found out through this financial counsellor is it's like I didn't benefit from any of this debt, none of it. So I should never have gone bankrupt. And that's a very clear case, Samantha. I mean, I think the industry terms it like a sexually transmitted debt in the sense that, you know, you can really tell if you are being hurt here because you had no financial gain in those debts. And you mentioned that you went in as a business with a director, tick, that's going to make you liable. He had access to cards as maybe an additional cardholder, tick, that's there. So a lot of people don't realise that. It's systematic too. Yeah, absolutely. It's not like one day I had full financial control and then the next day he's in control of it. It's systematic. It's step by step. I know your father was your first port of call. Uh, bless your father. <laughs> what other organisations did you find helpful? Centre Against Violence. They were the first people I went to. And then I went to the free legal service. So in the direct aftermath, they were my sources of help. And then like a couple of years later, when I realised something's not right here with the financial outcome that I personally had, you can actually access financial counsellors. And what they'll do is they'll help you just put the brakes on everything. And they'll pour through every document. These financial counsellors, they'll go, hang on a second, you shouldn't be going into bankruptcy. This is the path that we should take. And they are so crucial and no one even knows they exist. I didn't know they existed until I spoke to National Debt Helpline. There are a lot of fantastic organisations out there that are doing some great work to help women who are experiencing financial abuse. And I'm the founder of one of those organisations here with me now, Rebecca Glenn from the Centre for Women's Economic Safety. Hey, Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love for you to explain what exactly economic abuse is and if you can give me some examples. Sure. Look, economic abuse is, I guess, like a, a lot of other forms of domestic abuse, it's really about power and control. Uh, and if you think about just how central money is to all of our lives, you can see why it becomes, you know, a lever that is used by abusers to assert their control over their partner. So it's basically when one partner restricts or exploits or sabotages the other person's economic resources. And they do it in a way that's going to constrain their ability to live life freely and in a way that threatens 
means their financial security, all of which we've just heard illustrated so well by San. Uh, and so when we talk about economic resources, obviously it sort of sounds a little bit formal and academic, but really we're just talking about money. We're talking about mobile phones, transport, housing, employment, even in some cases food. But we're talking about all of these things that are necessary to live and generate an income. So it could look like, and we heard really quite a range of things in Sam's story, like sabotaging a person's employment, you know, that constant harassment at work. Other people might have experienced things like having the car keys hidden so they couldn't get to work or they're always late. And it can look like not being allowed access to money. Sometimes people are given a really small allowance. It's barely enough to live on, or they're told exactly what they can and can't spend money on. And as we did hear, you know, particularly common and Sam experienced a really sort of extreme examples of it through the business as well as through personal finances is running up debts in someone else's name. And another thing you often see is destroying someone's property. Often it's disguised as, oh, you know, someone just had a temper tantrum and some things got damaged or destroyed. Well, it's interesting that the perpetrator always manages to destroy their partner's property and not their favourite things. So there are many, many different ways that perpetrators find to inflict financial damage. Yeah, it's so true. All my clothes were cut up. So I only had like a very limited amount of clothes that were like approved by him to wear. So in a lot of cases, it's got nothing to do with the money. It comes down to that power and control, as you were saying, Rebecca. And I noticed, Samantha, you were nodding your head throughout Rebecca's description. Clearly that resonated with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I found out after I left that he actually had, you know, some of like $40,000 plus hidden from me throughout the relationship. I had access to the bank account that never had money in it. So I really believed that we had no money. There's a lot of gaslighting involved in that. And I think one of the reasons why economic abuse is so prevalent and yet almost invisible is that we often anchor to the things that we can see. So for instance, you see a person being harassed at work. And so that's, you know, stalking and harassment, also domestic abuse, without realising, of course, these extraordinary economic impacts of doing that as well. The emotional abuse that we're talking about there with her clothes being cut up, yes, it's emotional abuse. It's also economic abuse because their assets of Sam she no longer has it will cost her money to replace so it's happening on multiple levels she's losing some of her autonomy she's has these costs stacking up and is feeling bad about herself because of his undermining of her self-worth and, and that's a really good point Rebecca because that emotional economic abuse Sam your friends or, or co-workers whatever may not have seen that and I don't think there's enough light shed on this for me I've got to say I watched a series on Netflix called Made. It was an eye-opener. Samantha, I don't know if you've seen that. It was quite distressing for me to watch, so that's just something to be mindful of. It really did tackle these issues so, so well that abuse isn't always physical. It can take on the other forms, as you mentioned, Rebecca. And Samantha, of course, you lived this. We don't recognise this so easily. The victim does not recognise this. Can you shed some light? Why? Because for someone that's listening, they may not understand that. And God forbid, you don't want to be in that situation to understand it. But if you can shed some light on that, why that's not understood at that time? Well, I do encourage everyone to watch Made because I think it's a really good illustration of a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. But Sam, I think, explained really well how people who are using abuse are almost never abusive all the time. And I think there's a barrier that we have as a society is that if we interact with someone who's polite or fun or charming or funny or, or you know, we've spent a, a total of a couple of hours with them, we tend to totalise that that is therefore their character. We decide they're a good person 
and uh, you know we can't imagine there anything else but none of us present our worst selves in public as a general rule and of course we all have good and bad and so I think if you're in a relationship and you have feelings for someone using abuse it can be quite a leap to give your partner a label like they're an abuser. Well, it makes you feel like you're stupid though it's like I'm not that stupid to fall for an abusive person you get asked that all the time you're a smart girl how did you get into that and it's like you don't want to be the stupid person that chose the wrong person that everybody's been telling you is the wrong person you don't want to be an idiot you know but it's so much more difficult than that samantha isn't it don't ever underestimate what you've gone through and how you've spotted it because you're not alone i would imagine rebecca that this is the trait it takes a lot to actually stand back when love is involved emotions involved it clouds judgments it is but i guess there's another stereotype we hold is who do we think victims of domestic violence are and so that many women and i've met many women you know smart capable creative women doing all sorts of amazing things in life who have experienced abuse and they tend not to identify as a victim. I actually recall one woman saying to me, if I had decided that it was abuse, I would have been forced to do something about it. And she actually was in a situation for a long time where she felt she couldn't leave and that was because of the financial abuse. But I think there's one thing to know that your partner's behaving in a way that you don't like. But it's another thing to have a label like economic abuse, like he's a perpetrator, he's an abuser. So I think it takes a bit of time before you can only come to that conclusion. And then, of course, it's a really difficult situation to be in. And often it'll be thoughts of what this means for children that prompts people to act. But it's different for everybody. I think also sometimes, oh, sorry, I was going to say that. Sometimes, like, I know that my ex, even though he is systematic, and knows exactly what he's doing, he will never identify himself as an abusive person because his definition is, well, I didn't hit you and you don't have the right to be afraid of me because I'm not going to hit you. I just need to control you a little bit and I need to mould you into my way of thinking. So it's defining that, like, this is abuse. And that's what you're highlighting here, the fact that abuse can take on these forms and it's not discussed too much uh, at this stage anyway. Now, you said, Samantha, you left, you had your father, thankfully. You left with nothing, a suitcase. Rebecca, that's a hard decision to make because you actually mentioned financial abuse is what can keep people in a situation. If they don't have the financial means to leave, they're, they're stuck. Samantha made that move. I suspect it wasn't easy. I know there was some support there, but generally what support is available for women or for men who, who need to leave a situation, but they don't have a cash cushion, so to speak? I guess it depends so much on an individual circumstances. We've heard how often perpetrators do isolate someone from their friends and family. Often they've gaslit them and tried to drive a wedge between their partner and, and their friends and family. If there are friends and family, they are almost always the first people that someone will go to. There are support services that people can access, whether it's 1-800-RESPECT, who really, I guess, can triage calls that come in so that they might be able to say to someone like Sam what the service is that's nearby her. So it can really sort of help direct people to services available in their local area. If there are debts, then the National Debt Helpline can also be of immediate assistance and put you in touch with a financial counsellor who can help. If someone is thinking about leaving or just uncomfortable in their relationship and the way that money is being managed, we created a website specifically for someone in that circumstance, which is the Economic Safety website. There are some places where you can have a look at what steps you might want to think about taking 
before leaving, if leaving is what you're hoping to do. So, you know, gathering some important documents, your identification document, birth certificate, passports and so on, getting them in a safe place, getting them with a a friend or family member and perhaps taking copies if it's not safe to actually remove them. Setting up an email address that your partner knows nothing about. Setting up a bank account that your partner knows nothing about. If it's possible, and sometimes perpetrators will go to great lengths to make sure that those things are incredibly difficult to do. So it's always, you know, what is safe to do. But there's some things that you can start to think about if you're wanting to leave an abusive partner and wanting just to to try and sort of ease your way into a life without them. Acknowledging, as we heard, that just because a relationship ends, it doesn't mean the abuse ends. So there's a lot to take on board. Samantha, when you left, you declared bankruptcy. Can you tell us a little more about that decision? You know, when you leave these, like what Rebecca mentioned, gaslighting, you're so gaslit. You can't think straight because the power make your own choices has been obliterated and that takes a long time to regain the confidence to make your own choices and to understand the choices that you're making so when I went to the accountant and was like what do I do he was just like go to this guy when I spoke to this person I just did whatever he said the bankruptcy was literally like just someone told me to do it I'd like to know what you would have preferred to have happened. Where do you see the flaws here in the system and what process would you have preferred to be enlightened with when you were told to go bankrupt? I think Rebecca and I have had a chat a couple of times about this, about having a centralised system. You get a coordinator, a domestic violence coordinator that is like the central hub to all these services and goes, right, okay, I'm going to listen to your story and let's get you to centre against violence and get your immediate safety done. Check. Okay finances where are we at let me look at your bank accounts let me see what financial counselors are available in the area that are not for profit or run by the government check go there someone who's a spokesperson who can speak to the banks on your behalf you've got to understand that when someone leaves a situation like this i know this is going to sound wrong you don't have the capacity to make your own decisions because you've been gaslit because your self-autonomy to make decisions and your sense of power to make the right choices are gone You need someone who can speak on your behalf and see a clear pathway out of this. And you need someone who can harness all the services because at the moment, all those services are segregated. It's actually a bloody good idea. It sounds simple, but I've got to ask Rebecca, is the simplicity of this the fact it won't get across the line? Can all these organisations talk to one another? Because the implication of a woman who has suffered abuse and must then suffer the financial abuse, going bankrupt is not just one year, two years. It's there for several years and it harms you for that period. Is Samantha's idea doable? If not, what would you like to say? No, it's in fact been trialled. It's just not widespread. To me, the best practice situation that we can have is specialist DV counsellors at the same site with financial counsellors and specialist finance experts with lawyers because very often people need all three. And West Justice down in Victoria has been trialling this model and the outcomes are significantly better for women who have gone through that experience. It is more expensive to run a service in that way. I think we just have to make the investment and it's been proven to work. I'd like to see a lot more of it. Yeah, well said. Look, I would like to wrap this up and I'd like to ask you, Samantha, if someone is listening right now and they can relate 
to what you've said and they don't have a dad that they can go to or they just can't see a, a, a way out. What would you actually say to that person? Well, for one, I'd say you're not crazy. Two, there is a way to live a better life where you can thrive instead of survive. And the first place that I would go to if I didn't have my dad, I would go to a police station. I'd go to my old workplace or I would even go to even just like the local council. And I've often had dreams about what would I have done differently and and that's what I would have done. People are always willing to help if they are asked and even if they, they might not have the answers, they will help you find the answers. Just go ask for help. You don't have to know the person. I guess what you're giving other women is strength that you clearly have. And yeah, again, I thank you for for sharing your story. Rebecca, your parting words for someone who is trying to leave an abusive relationship. I firstly just want to acknowledge for anyone in a situation like Sam was the extraordinary efforts Mm. that they go to to manage someone's behaviour, to reduce the aggression being directed towards their man or their children and to try and create safety. And so when we talk about that sense of feeling overwhelmed, that sense of not being able to make decisions. It's not they're not being able to make decisions, it's having to make so many active decisions just to stay alive and try and and get by day to day that the bandwidth that's left is very little. Mm. So I I just want to acknowledge that because, you know, the the myriad ways that people resist violence and the effort they have to go to to do that is often underestimated. So yeah, kudos. I think mostly people experiencing violence know better than they think they do. As you say, you're not going crazy. There is help available. If you don't know where to start, if you either can call a triage line like 1-800-RESPECT, visit economicsafety.org.au, you'll be able to be connected with services that might be relevant to you and in your area. Thanks, Rebecca. We'll put those links up. And Samantha, again, thank you. We look forward to you pushing through some of those changes that just make complete sense. Well done to you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Real Money with Effie Zahos, powered by CanStar, Australia's biggest financial comparison site. CanStar's experts research and rate finance products from over 30 categories, including home loans and insurance, personal loans, super and investing. To compare products and see if you could be getting a better deal, visit canstar.com.au. As always, you'll find useful links in the show notes. But if you need more information on today's podcast topics or any other money topics, head to canstar.com.au. Do you have a money story you'd like to share? Get in touch with me at effie.zahos at canstar.com.au.